Chapter 9 of The Lust of Hate by Guy Newell Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 South Africa. Seven o'clock next morning found us entering Table Bay, our eventful journey accomplished. Overhead towered the famous mountain from which the bay derives its name, its top shrouded in its cloth. At its foot reposed the town with which my destiny seemed so vitally connected, and which I was approaching with so much trepidation. As I stood on the promenade deck and watched the land open out before me, my sensations would have formed a good problem for a student of character, with the perception rendered abnormally acute by my fear. I could discern the boat of the port authorities putting off to us long before I should at any other time have been able to see it. It had yet to be discovered whether or not it contained a police official in search of me, as I watched her dipping her nose into the seas and then tossing the spray off from either bow in a haste to get to us. She seemed to me to be like a bloodhound on my track. The closer she came, the more violently my heart began to beat until it was as much as I could do to breathe. If only I could be certain that she was conveying an officer to arrest me, I felt I might find pluck enough to drop overboard and so end the pursuit for good and all. But I did not know, and the doubt upon the point decided me to remain where I was and brave the upshot. As I watched her, I heard a footstep upon the deck behind me. I turned my head to find that it was Miss Maybourne. She came up beside me, and having glanced ashore at the city nestling at the foot of the great mountain, and then at the launch coming out to meet us, turned to address me. Mr. Rexford, she began, I'm going to ask you to do me a great favour, and I want you to promise to grant it before I tell you what it is. I'm afraid I can hardly do that, I answered, but if you tell me what it is, I will promise to do it for you if it is in any way possible. It is this, she said. I want you, in the event of my father not meeting me, to take me home. I don't say no, Mr. Rexford. I want you so much to do it. Surely you will not deny me the last request I make to you. She looked so pleadingly into my face that, as usual, it required all my courage not to give way to her. But the risk was too great for me even to contemplate such a thing for a moment. My rescue of the daughter of Cornelius Maybourne my presence in Cape Town would soon link out, and then it would only be a matter of hours before I should be arrested. Whatever my own inclinations may have been, I felt there was nothing for it but for me to refuse. I am not my own master in this matter, I replied, with a bitterness which must have shown her how much in earnest I was. It is impossible that I can remain so long in the place. There are the most vital reasons in the world against it. I can only ask you to believe that. I saw large tears rise in her eyes, though she turned hurriedly away in the hope that I should not see them. To see her weep, however, was more than I could bear, and under the influence of her trouble my resolutions began to give away. After all, if I was destined to be arrested, I might as just as well be taken at Miss Maybourne's house as elsewhere, perhaps better. Besides, it was more than likely in the event of no warrant being issued, Mr. Maybourne, whose influence I've been told was enormous in the colony, might prove just the very friend of all others I wanted. At any rate, if I were not taken before the time came for going ashore, 
I would do as she wished. I told her this and she immediately thanked me and went down below again. Just as I announced my decision, the launch came alongside and a moment later the passengers were ascending the accommodation ladder which had been lowered to receive them. They were three in number and included, so I was told by a gentleman who stood beside me, the harbour master, the officer of health and another individual about whose identity my informant was not quite assured. I looked at the last name with no little apprehension. My nervousness endowed him with all the attributes of a police official, and my mind's eye could almost discover the manacles reposing in his coat pocket. I trust I may never pass through another agonising few minutes as I experienced then. I saw the party step onto the spar deck where they shook hands with the purser and the chief officer, and watched them as they ascended the promenade deck and made their way towards the bridge. Here they were received by the skipper. I leaned against the rails, sick with fear and trembling in every limb, expecting every moment to feel a heavy hand upon my shoulder and to hear the stern voice saying in my ear, Gilbert Pennythorne, I arrest you on a charge of murder. But minute after minute went by and still no one came to speak the fatal words. The ship which had been brought to a standstill to pick up the boat had now got under way again we were approaching closer and closer to the docks. In less than half an hour, I should know my fate. As soon as we were safely installed in dock and everyone was looking after his or her luggage, saying goodbye and preparing to go ashore, I began to look about me for Miss Maybourne. Having found her, we went to the chart room together to bid the captain goodbye and to thank him for the hospitality and kindness he had shown us. The doctor was next to be discovered when he had been assured of our gratitude, we made inquiries for Mr. Maybourne. It soon became evident that he was not on board. So taking his daughter under my protection, we said our final farewells and went down the gangway. For the first time in my life, I set foot on South African soil. The custom house once passed and the authorities convinced that we had nothing to declare. I hailed a cab and invited Miss Maybourne to instruct the driver in which direction he was to proceed. Half an hour later, we had left the city behind us and were driving through the suburbs in the direction of Mr. Maybourne's residence. After following a pretty road for something like a mile on either side, which I noticed a number of stately residences, we found ourselves confronted with a pair of large iron gates behind which was a neat lodge. But for the difference in the vegetation, it might very well have been the entrance to an English park. Through the trees ahead, I could distinguish as we rolled along the well-kept drive, the chimneys of a noble residence, but I was quite unprepared for the picture which burst upon my view when we turned a corner and had the whole house before us. Unlike most South African dwellings, it was a building of three storeys, surmounted by a tower. Broad verandas ran round each floor, and the importance of the building was enhanced by the fact that it stood on a fine terrace which again led down by a broad flight of steps to the flower gardens and orangery. A more delightful home could scarcely be imagined, and when I saw it, I ceased to wonder that Miss Maybourne had so often expressed preference for South Africa as compared with England. When the cab drew up at the front door, I jumped out and was about to help my companion to alight when I heard the front door open, and the next moment a tall, fine-looking man, about sixty years of age, crossed the veranda and came down the steps. 
At first he regarded me with a stare of surprise, but before he could ask me my business, Miss Maybourne had descended from the vehicle and was in his arms. Not desiring to interrupt them in their greetings, I strolled down the path. But I was not permitted to go far before I heard my name called. I turned and went back to have my hand nearly shaken off by Mr. Maybourne. My daughter says you saved her life, he cried. I'll not ask questions now, but I thank you, sir, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. God knows you've done me a service, the value of which no man can estimate. The warmth of his manner was so much above what I had expected that it left me without power to reply. Come in, come in, he continued in a voice that fairly shook with emotion. Oh, let us thank God for this happy day. He placed his arm round his daughter's waist and drew her to him as if he would not let her move from his side again. I followed a few steps behind and should have entered the house had I not been recalled by the cabman, who ventured to remind me that he had not yet been paid. I instantly put my hand into my pocket, only to have the fact recalled to me that I possessed no money at all. All my capital had gone to the bottom in the Fiji Princess, and I was absolutely penniless. The position was an embarrassing one, and I was just reflecting what I had better do when I heard Mr. Mabel come out into the veranda again. He must have divined my difficulty, for without hesitation he discharged the debt, and apologising for not having thought of it, led me into the house. Passing through an elegantly furnished hall, we entered the dining room. Here breakfast was laid, and it was evidently from a meal that Mr. Maybourne had jumped up to receive us. Now, Mr. Rexford, he cried, pointing to the chair, sit yourself down yonder. Let me hear everything from the beginning to the end. Heaven knows I can hardly believe my good fortune. Half an hour ago, I was the most miserable man under the sun. Now that I've got my darling back safe and sound, I believe I'm the happiest. Had you then heard of the wreck of the Fiji princess, I inquired? Here is a telegram received last night, he said, handing me a paper he had taken from his pocket. You see, it is from Tenerife. It says that nothing has yet been heard of the vessel, which was then more than a fortnight overdue. Agnes tells me that you were rescued by the King of Carthage. I understood she was expected about midday today, and I'd resolved to visit her as soon as she got into dock in order to inquire if they had any tidings to report regarding the lost vessel. How little I expected to find it you were safe on board her, Aggie. Mr. Rexford, you can have no idea of the agony I have suffered this week past. On the contrary, I answered, I think I can very well imagine it. And now tell me your story. I must not be cheated of a single detail. I saw from the way he looked at me that he expected me to do the narrating. So I did so, commencing with the striking of the vessel on the rock and the winding up with an account of our rescue by the King of Carthage. He listened with rapt attention until I had finished and then turned to his daughter. Has Mr. Rexford told me everything? he asked with a smile. No, she answered. He has not told you half enough. He has not told you that when I fell overboard one night when we were off the Spanish coast, he sprang over after me and held me up until a boat came to our assistance. He has not told you that when the vessel sank, he gave his own life belt up to me. Nor has he given you any idea of his constant kindness and self-sacrifices all through that dreadful time. Mr. Maybourne rose from his chair as she finished speaking and came round to where I sat. Holding out his hand to me, he said with tears standing in his eyes, Mr. Rexford, you are a brave man, and from the bottom of my heart I thank you. You have saved my girl and brought her home safe to me. 
as long as you live i shall not be able to repay that debt i owe you remember however that henceforth i am your truest friend but i must draw a curtain over this scene if i go into any further details i shall break down again as i did then suffice it to say mr maybourne refused to hear of my leaving his house as i proposed but insisted that i should remain as his guest until i decided what i intended to do with myself for the future you must look upon this as your home in south africa he said i seem powerless to express my gratitude to you as i should like but time may come when i may even be able to do that you have more than repaid me i'm sure i replied i have every reason to be deeply grateful to you for the way you have received me he replied in his former strain and when he had done so the conversation turned upon those who had been lost in the ill-fated fiji princess it was easy to see that his brother-in-law's death cut him to the quick after luncheon that day i found myself alone with mr maybourne i was not sorry for this as i wanted to sound him as to my future movements as i have so often said i had no sort of desire to remain in cape town and judged that the sooner i was up country and out of civilization the better it would be for me you must forgive me for being frank with you mr rexford said my host as we lit cigars preparatory to drawing our chairs into the veranda i have gathered from what you yourself have said and from listening to what my daughter has told me you are visiting south africa on the chance of obtaining some sort of employment is this so that's exactly why i'm here i said i'm most anxious to find something to do as soon as possible in what direction will you seek it he asked what is your inclination remember i may be able to help you i'm not all that particular i answered i've knocked about the world a good deal and i can turn my hand to most things but if a choice were permitted me i fancy i should prefer mining of some sort to anything else indeed i had no idea you understood that sort of work i've done a good deal of it i replied with a little touch of pride for which the next moment i found it difficult to account considering the result to which it had brought me he asked me one or two practical questions which i was fortunately able to answer to his satisfaction and then was silent for a couple of minutes or so at last he consulted his pocket-book and turned to me again i fancy mr rexford he said that you have come in the nick of time for both of us we may be able to do each other in mutual services i'm very glad to hear that i answered but in what possible way can i help you well the matter stands like this he said as you are doubtless aware my business is mostly in connection with mining both in this colony and its neighbours well information has lately reached me concerning what promises to prove first-class property in mashona land eighty-five miles from bulawayo the mine has been excellently reported on and is now being got into good order it only needs a capable manager at its head to do really well of course such a man is easily procured in a country where every man seems to be engaged in mining more or less and yet for that very self-same reason i am unable to make a selection the available men all know too much and i have private reasons for wishing this mine to be well looked after now the question is would you care for the post needless to say i embrace the opportunity in much the same manner as a hungry trout jumps at a fly if i could only manage to get up there without being caught the appointment would suit me in every way mr maybourne seemed as pleased at my acceptance of it as i was at his offer and when after a little further conversation in which i received many useful hints and no small amount of advice 
it was revealed to his daughter. She struck me as being even more delighted than either her father or myself. I noticed that Mr. Maybourne looked at her rather anxiously for a moment, as if he suspected there might be some sort of understanding between us. But whatever he may have thought, he kept it to himself. He need, however, had no fear on that score. Circumstances had placed an insurmountable barrier between myself and any thought of marriage with his daughter. As the result of our conversation, and at my special desire, it was arranged that I should start for my post on the following day. But nobody could have been more eager than I was to be out in the wild. But with it all, my heart felt sad when I thought that after tomorrow, I may never see the woman I so ardently loved again. Since the previous night, when on the promenade deck of the steamer, I told her of my love, neither of us had referred in any way to the subject. So remote was the chance that I should ever be able to make her my wife that I determined, so far as possible, to prevent myself from giving any thought to the idea. But I was not destined, after all, to leave without referring to the matter. That evening after dinner we were sitting in the veranda outside the drawing room when the butler came in to inform Mr. Maybourne that a neighbour had called to see him. Asking us to excuse him for a few moments, he left us and went into the house. When we were alone together, I spoke to my companion of her father's kindness and told her how much I appreciated it. She uttered a little sigh, and as this seemed such an extraordinary answer to my speech, I inquired the reason of it. You say you're going away tomorrow, she answered, and yet you ask me why I sigh. Cannot you guess? Agnes, I said, you know I have no option but to go. Do not let us go over the ground we covered last night. It would be best not for both our sakes. You must see that yourself. You know that I love you, and I know that you love me, and yet you can go away so calmly. What can your love be worth? You know what it's worth, I answered vehemently, roused out of myself by his accusation. If ever the chance occurs again of proving it, you will be afforded another example. I cannot say more. And is it always to be like this, Gilbert, she asked for the first time, calling me by my Christian name? Are we to be separated all our lives? God knows, I fear so, I murmured, though it cut me to the heart to have to say the words. She bowed her head on her hands with a little moan, while I, feeling that I should not be able to control myself much longer, sprang to my feet and went across to the veranda rails. For something like five minutes I stood looking into the dark garden. Then I pulled myself together as well as I was able and went back to my chair. Agnes, I said as I took possession of her little hand, you cannot guess what it cost me to tell you how impossible it is for me to ever think my lot with yours. The reason why I cannot tell you, my secret is the bitterest one a man can have to keep. It must remain locked in my own breast for all time. Had I met you earlier, it might have been very different. But now our ways must be separate, forever. Don't think more hardly of me than you can help, dear. Remember only that as long as I live, I shall call no other woman wife. Henceforward, I will try to be worthy of the interest you have felt in me. No one shall ever have the right to say aught against me. And if by any chance you hear good of me in the dark days to come, you will know that it is for love of you I rule my life. May God bless and keep you always. She held up her sweet face to me, and I kissed her on the lips. Then Mr. Maybourne returned to the veranda, and half an hour later, feeling that father and daughter would like a little time alone together, I begged them to excuse me, and on a pretense of feeling tired, went to my room. 
the next morning after breakfast i drove with mr maybourne into cape town where i made the few purchases necessary for my journey in extension of the kindness he had so far shown me he insisted on advancing me half my first year's salary a piece of generosity for which you may be sure i was not ungrateful seeing that i had not one halfpenny in the world to call my own out of this sum i paid the steamship company for my passage much against their wish obtained a ready-made rig out suitable for the rough life i should henceforth live also a revolver a rifle and among other things a small gold locket which i wished to give to agnes as a keepsake and remembrance of myself at twelve o'clock i returned to the house and after lunch prepared to bid the woman i loved good-bye of that scene i cannot attempt to give you any description the pain is too keen even now suffice it that when i left the house i carried with me in addition to a sorrow that i thought would last me all my life a little square parcel which on opening i found to contain a photo of herself in a russia leather case how i prized that little present i will leave you to guess two hours later i was in the train bound for johannesburg End of chapter nine